0: Holy Father, we need nothing, no matter what our circumstances may be, in what state and condition we came into this house this morning, happy or sad, at peace or troubled. What we need, what every one of us needs and always needs, more than anything else, is the knowledge, the conviction and the experience of your presence In our midst and in our hearts, draw near as you have promised to do, O God. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them, our Savior said. Judah has become God's sanctuary, we read in the Bible. Make it so again this morning, our Heavenly Father. Draw near and may the presence of the living God be made known to each of us. If, O God, we worship in spirit and in truth, surely that will be the reward. So grant us grace to worship you aright, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. (coughs) Several weeks ago in the evening service, I mentioned Andrew Thompson as one of the predecessors of Alexander White in the ministry of St. George's uh, congregation in Edinburgh, uh, the first third or 40 years of the 19th century. Thompson was a great preacher and a faithful pastor, but I mentioned to you that we know him because he was also a formidable musician and that we sing this famous paraphrase of Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, to a tune written by Andrew Thompson. So it is, we sing this morning these verses from the 94th Psalm, or the 24th Psalm rather, to Andrew Thompson's music, and in this way, not only invite the Lord to come into our midst, and to take his place before us as we worship him, but we declare his praises as the living God. Be seated, please, and now on to prayer. We have that great God in our presence. It is incumbent upon us to humble ourselves in his presence, that he might lift us up. Let us pray. Now God's people, together from their heart. Merciful God, we humble ourselves in your presence, confessing our unworthiness and sinfulness in your sight. We have broken your holy law. We have not sought first your kingdom and righteousness. We have been anxious and troubled about many things, and have neglected the things that belong to our peace. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, or done to others as we would that they should do to us. Most gracious God, our Heavenly Father, who has given your Son, Jesus Christ, to save your people from their sins, and renew a right spirit within us, through the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. And among the many statements in the Word of God designed to assure us of the forgiveness of our sins, if we have come seeking that forgiveness in Jesus' name, is this from the 106th Psalm. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. No use denying it. The facts are the facts. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. I don't know about you, but I find it extraordinarily consoling and comforting that the Lord forgives my sins and yours, not simply because we have confessed them, but because of his character and his nature he will always be true to the promises He has made. He is always, will always be faithful to the work that was done by His Son. Our forgiveness rests on the character of the unchanging, the immutable God. Let's stand and confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished that forgiveness and that salvation for us, singing one of the most ancient hymns that we have in this or any Hymn book. We're actually providing you a, a copy of the hymn to the tune to which we sing it from the first edition of Trinity Hymnal. Uh, you see that there. It was authored by Clement of Alexandria either late in the second century or early in the third and then translated into English by the American Congregationalist Henry Dexter. Stand and confess your faith in Jesus Christ. and continue your worship, not now with the expression of heart by the lips, but the offering of your life by the hand, your tithes and offerings. and our gifts ourselves to God, let's stand and tell him we know whence our blessings come. of Joshua, we come this morning to chapter 23, and we're reading all 16 verses of that chapter. Near the end of his life, Joshua delivered two farewell addresses to the nation of Israel, to the nation as represented by its leadership. The first, apparently, delivered at Shiloh, that we have here in chapter 23. The second, as we read at the beginning of chapter 24, delivered at Shechem. So it is the first of these two addresses we have before us this morning. Moses, if you remember, had likewise given a farewell address before his death. We read it near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. A further reminder that Joshua was, as it were, another Moses. A point often underscored in the book of Joshua, even perhaps a theme of the book. These final speeches very clearly sum up and recapitulate some of the main themes of the book. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, in the latter chapters of Joshua, we've already noticed emphasis falling on how long it has been since Israel first entered the promised land by the time larger military operations were concluded five years had passed we read that in chapter 14 verse 10 now it is still later how much later we are not told Joshua summoned all Israel its elders and heads its judges and officers and said to them I am now old and well advanced in years and you have seen All that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Three times in the chapter, Joshua is going to remind Israel of what the Lord had done for her. Throughout the Bible, this is the first and this is the chief motivation for a devout and godly Christian life. The Lord has been gracious to us. He has lavished on us fabulous gifts that we did not deserve. And what then is the faithful Christian life but our expression of gratitude to him in word and deed? Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West." The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. The Lord had done already so much for Israel, but he was prepared to do still more. Complete possession of the promised land was Israel's to achieve. The Lord was prepared to help her do it. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand, <coughs> excuse me, nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. So, in order to claim this further blessing of the Lord, Israel was required to remain faithful to him. That faithfulness would be demonstrated by obedience and by an active and living confidence in the Lord. The reference to pagan practices of worship reminds us that it was this temptation in particular that the Canaanites posed to Israel. Canaanite worship was tempting to Israel because of its radically sensual nature orgy as worship and because it conformed to the conventions of ancient Near Eastern thought. It didn't require Israel to be different, to be unlike everybody else. Human beings crave acceptance, but the Lord required Israel to be a counterculture, a nation, a people apart. Always a very hard thing for human beings. The temptations to be like everyone else and to seek sensual pleasure have undone a great many people in our world today, just as they did in the ancient world. And as a matter of fact, as we know, this would be Israel's undoing again and again over the remainder of her history as recorded in the Old Testament. Joshua knew of what he spoke. Israel's great peril was the temptation to conform to the world around her. And when she allowed that world to flourish in her very midst, ruin could not be far away. When people invite the devil to tempt them, he always obliges For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. While the Lord had been with Israel and had given her the land of Canaan as he promised, Joshua is realistic about the challenges that still face the people of God. He's already mentioned the nations that still remain in the land, the peoples that Israel had not yet dispossessed. And he will mention them again. Indeed, the word for nations appears seven times in this chapter. It is clearly the great peril that Joshua sees looming on Israel's horizon. Obviously, these nations pose a threat to Israel's spiritual welfare, her loyalty to the Lord, a point made repeatedly in the prospect in the book of Deuteronomy and also many times earlier in the chapters of early chapters of Joshua. This is why Israel had been commanded to dispossess these peoples, the Hivites, the Gergeshites, and so on. Which, alas, to this point, she had only partially done. The book of Judges will relate the sad tale of Israel's spiritual decline. A decline that happened in large part because the seeds of her spiritual corruption were allowed to remain in the land, in the earth in which she now lived. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Here, Israel's faithfulness is defined not by her obedience or by her trust in the word of God, but by her love for him. Paul says the same thing at the end of 1 Corinthians, when he defines the true Christian not as someone who believes in Jesus Christ but as someone who loves Jesus Christ love personalizes the Christian life because love in its very nature requires two persons and a relationship between them for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now, I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Here we are reminded that Israel progressed as far as she did because she had taken God at his word. And then he had proved faithful to that word. He'll always prove faithful. So our faithfulness can be defined as confidence And you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Our Father in heaven, this is a word for today, for every day. We are the Israel of God. We who believe and confess Jesus Christ, your Son, as Lord and Savior. So this is encouragement and warning for us. Help us, O God, to grasp the nettle of this teaching. Take it to heart. Practice it in our lives. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Over and again through this series of sermons, I have pointed out how the history recounted in Joshua is paradigmatic. It reveals the pattern of human life, and especially of believing life. I've reminded you many times that the rest of the Bible teaches us To look at this history in this way, Israel's taking of the promised land is in some fundamental ways like Christians obtaining salvation or gaining possession of heaven itself. And this continues to be the case in chapter 23. And it is so in a variety of ways. For example, we might notice something here that is characteristic of the believer's training in faith and godliness throughout the Bible. Joshua seeks to motivate the people of God to a life of faith and godliness, but he does so in two very different ways. We might say that he uses both the carrot and the stick. He reminds them of God's great faithfulness, of all that God has done for them, all that he has promised still to do for them. That's the carrot. The first half of the the chapter is so positive and encouraging, but then the tone changes. Joshua also, and very sternly, reminds them of the consequences of faithlessness and of disobedience. In verses 11 through 13 and verses 15 and 16, he threatens them with doom if they forget the kindness of God, if they squander the Lord's gifts to them by breaking the covenant that God made with them. Gratitude is a powerful motive for right living, but so is fear. And throughout the Bible, both motives are employed to keep our wayward feet firmly fixed on the straight and narrow path that leads to everlasting life. But there's something more fundamental still here in Joshua 23. We have here some of the most fundamental perspectives on life that we find in the Bible. Absolutely vital to a right understanding of life and salvation, but perspectives that have proved exceedingly difficult for human beings to grasp, and once grasped, to keep in mind for any length of time. What we have, in other words, in Joshua 23, are some of the key elements in the biblical view of the world and the life of mankind. If we mistake these... We must go fundamentally wrong in our view of life and in particular in our view of our own lives. Indeed, it's precisely here with respect to these fundamental facts of life that most human beings go terribly wrong. There are two such bottom facts or truths front and center in Joshua's first farewell discourse. And the first of them is this. Life. Every human life is poised on a knife edge with God's love and salvation on one side and His judgment on the other. This is what Joshua will not let Israel forget. This is what he thinks most necessary that she know and remember. So long as she is in this world, she has before her the prospect of God's favor, of God's love of God's approval and acceptance and blessing before her. But at the same time, she is equally threatened by the looming reality of his judgment. We might have thought otherwise. We might have supposed that Joshua in his farewell address would say to Israel, Congratulations, you've done the great work you needed to do. You've arrived. The promised land is yours. Now enjoy the spoils of your victory. Go home. It's been years. Time to relax and smell the roses. But he doesn't say that. The Bible never says that. Not once. While we are still living in this world, the issue of life always hangs in the balance. I don't mean to say, of course, that no one can know that he or she is saved and going to heaven. Of course, believers can know that. But we are taught a thousand times and in a thousand different ways in Holy Scripture that the knowledge of our salvation can never become an excuse to lower our guard, to take heaven for granted, or to consider ourselves to have arrived. When Israel took her place in the promised land for granted and then broke her covenant with the Lord because she thought she had arrived, she lost the promised land as a result. That is the brute fact of Old Testament history and the typology that that history represents, a description of the Christian life and all of its principles. If we take anything away from the paradigmatic nature of the history of Joshua, Judges, and the rest of the Old Testament narrative, it should be this. If we are not determined to keep the promised land, we will lose it. As with so much else in the Christian life, this too is a problem of human life in general. Most people do not see the fundamental issue of their lives to be this single opportunity to avail themselves of God's grace and salvation and to avert the threat of His judgment. No matter their religion, No matter their philosophy of life, no matter their circumstances, their temperament, their personality, their understanding of life is usually altogether more prosaic and less serious. They're interested in their own happiness, their own success in various ways, their own fulfillment, and almost exclusively in the present, they have little interest in the future, still less interest in the distant future, where they will, like it or not, Encounter the God who gave them life, who wrote His law and His will upon their hearts, and who has perfect and exhaustive knowledge of how they have lived the life He gave them every moment of every single day. Knowledge of their thoughts, their words, their attitudes, their deeds. Serious things. But most people don't take them seriously at all fact is, the issue that Joshua says here is of supreme importance. The one thing he had to say to this people. Israel must remain faithful to God. Is of little or no consequence to most people. That's why they live as they do. They hardly ever think about such things, if truth be told. And when they do... They ordinarily comfort themselves with platitudes. And the platitudinous nature of their thinking about God and about judgment is revealed by nothing so much as the fact that in their minds they typically divide the human race into three groups, not two. This is always what gives them away. They think, well, I'm not Mother Teresa, I'm not that pious. I'm not that devoted to others nobody's gonna call me a saint but then I'm not Adolf Hitler either I'm a pretty good person I'm loved in my family I have friends I get along with others no one gnashes his teeth at me I'm in that large group of people in the middle not outstandingly good but not outstandingly evil either a fatal problem with that way of thinking The problem that Joshua exposes here is that there is no group in the middle. There is never a group in the middle. The Bible never divides the human race into three. The really bad, the really good, and the big group in the middle, partly good and partly bad. Never. Here, in Joshua 23, There are but two groups, as always in the Bible, faithful Israel and the pagan nations, one or the other. You'll notice that Joshua uses the same verb in both verse 8 and verse 12. One will either cling to the Lord or he will cling to the nations. That's the alternative, the sole alternative. Everyone is doing either the one or the other, as the great American theologian Bob Dylan put it you've got to serve somebody and so throughout the Bible there is always only the righteous and the wicked the saved and the lost the children of God and the enemies of God the fatal mistakes that people make that lead them to imagine themselves in some middle group or to imagine that how good you are is what matters rather than your relationship to God, and that God is some avuncular character who doesn't really care that you have taken the life that he gave you and that you have lived it for another reason entirely than the reason for which he gave you breath. No sinful human being is good enough for God, holy, just, and righteous as he is. That's why the Bible's central message is that Christ has come to bear in our place the judgment of God against us for our sin. The question isn't whether you're good enough. The question is always and only whether you have come to God and received his salvation as the free gift. It is and has to be. If there is one thing about your life in this world That the Bible relentlessly emphasizes that Holy Scripture is constantly forcing upon your attention and will not let you forget. It is this, your time in this world, however much you have, your years of life in this world matter supremely for the simple reason that it is your sole opportunity to choose what sort of life you will live in the next world. In that next world that lasts, not for 70 years or 80 or 90, but forever and ever. Human beings know this. Down deep, they all know it. They know they are not some biological accident, a piece of cosmic scrap thrown up on the shore of eternity with no connections before or after. They know they were made to live and live forever. They have eternity in their hearts They know there is a God to whom they owe their lives. They know that it matters to Him how they live. How else can they explain the profoundly moral shape and character of all of their thinking and all of their living? They're passing judgments all the time about everybody and everything. This world rings with judgment. Why? Because we've been made in the image of God who is the judge. They know all this, however however much they may suppress these truths because they fear to look them in the face. They know their life matters supremely, but still they live as if it didn't. As if all that mattered was the here and now. As if life were really about food and drink and sex and the job and so on. They're not raging against God by and large, not most of them. They're just dull, distracted, indifferent, committed to a host of little things, while the great thing, they ignore that thing that is looming just on the edge of their active consciousness. No, says Joshua in his parting words to Israel, it's not enough to have a new place to live, a new farm, new wealth. New prosperity. What matters because it matters forever is your relationship to God. He matters. The rest, the family, the farm, the pleasant prospects, they may be yours to enjoy, but only if you know them to be His gifts to you and because you are determined to demonstrate your gratitude for them to Him. The second fundamental perspective on life, the second key element, in this biblical worldview, is that a true and reliv- living relationship with God is intrinsically personal. By that I mean whether we're talking about faith, about trust and confidence in God, the keeping of His commandments, obedience, or love, all three of which Joshua mentions here in describing what faithfulness to God amounts to, what is required. What God demands is you. Not something of yours, but you. Not some action on your part, but your heart, your life, your soul, your very existence. All through the Bible it is so. And it must be so. Of course it is so. Could we imagine that God would give himself to us? Heart, soul, sacrifice, sacrifice. Terrible suffering, but want only in return some half-hearted, merely dutiful, routine acknowledgement of him on our part. That, of course, was Canaanite religion. Give your gifts at the temple or the high place. Do your bit for God, and you can live however you please. He doesn't care. Alas, that has been altogether too often what has passed for Christian worship through the ages. But not here. Not in the word of God. Here and throughout the Bible it is always the same. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind. Here Joshua makes the same point by saying that what God expects of us is obedience. He has given us His commandments. He is our God. It's ours to obey, or as Joshua puts it here in verse 6, to turn neither to the left nor to the right, but to do everything that is written in the law of God. Nothing is more personal than obedience to another. Our directing our lives according to the will of somebody else. But that same personal relationship may be described in another way. Such a living relationship, Joshua says, is also marked by faith, by confidence in him and his word. Living in that confidence. Living in the certainty that everything that God has said to you is true. Absolutely true. It can be relied on. That's what the Bible means by faith. And that's the idea of clinging to the Lord or sticking to the Lord. As Joshua puts it here in verse 8. Very personal descriptions. But still he's not done. He wants Israel to love the Lord, as he says in verse 11. Love sums it all up. Love is gratitude and it's devotion and it's delight and commitment and desire and it's longing. All compact and all deep in the heart. Love is the mark of any and every true and good relationship. Love. Faith obedience. They can be distinguished, but in every authentic relationship with God they cannot be separated. And each one of them is an intensely personal thing. Our love, our faith, our obedience may be very imperfect, very defective, but they must be real. We must be able to say that as the Lord is our witness in the depths of our heart We want nothing so much as perfect faith in God. Perfect love for him. Perfect obedience to all his commandments. Why? Because he's God. Because he's our maker. Because he's our savior. Because he is our heavenly father and our friend. Here too we find a perspective and outlook that is very difficult for human beings in their rebellion against God to grasp still more difficult for them to preserve I was given an example of this recently you've heard me mention before the name of Robert Farrar Capon heard me mention him from time to time Don Darby's father Bill McCauley was the first to put me onto to Capon years ago an Episcopalian priest and the author of many books books on the parables of the Lord books on cooking Um, autobiographical uh, books as well. Um, He had a knack of saying things in an interesting way and of putting his finger on the nub of an issue. I've recommended his book on marriage, bed and board to many engaged couples through the years. Bill first recommended Capon to me for his book, The Third Peacock. You will perhaps appreciate and remember more what I'm about to tell you about Robert Farrar Capon, if I give you a sample of his writing, this, the opening two paragraphs of the third Peacock, Capon's book on God and evil. Let me tell you why God made the world. One afternoon, before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead, discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being, and new kinds of being to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, Really? This is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs, pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and grapes, horseradishes and tigers, and men and women everywhere to taste them, juggle them, join them and loved them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and he said, Wonderful, just what I had in mind. Tov, 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 Hebrew for good that you have in Genesis one. And all God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could think of to say was the same thing. Tov, Tov Tov. So they shouted forever, Tov Mayov. Very good. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be and how clever of the father to think of the idea and how kind of the son to go to all that trouble putting it together and how considerate of the spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever they told old jokes, and the Father and the Son drank their wine in unitate Spiritus Sancti, and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other, per omnia saecula cyclorum. amen. It is, I grant you, a crass analogy. But crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force, or a principle of being, or any other thing we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. That was vintage Robert Farrar Capon. Perhaps a touch irreverent from time to time, very cute, very clever, always forcing you to think about things in a new way. And he had a way with words, as you can tell. He was particularly uh, appreciated by some in our reformed evangelical circles because of his powerful emphasis on grace as nothing but the gift of God in no way, shape, or form to any degree, in any measure, in any way, our own achievement. When Capon died late last year, A well-known PCA minister wrote on his blog, some of the best paragraphs I've ever read on grace came from Capon. But Capon, for all his ability to write sometimes interesting and memorable things about the Bible and the Christian faith, for all his worthy and proper emphasis on salvation as God's gift, as Christ's achievement, and as something we have not and never could deserve, I say for all of that, he is not an example of what Joshua is talking about here in Joshua 23 and what he is not only commending to us, but insisting that we recognize as true faithfulness to God. After 27 years of marriage and six children, Capon almost lost his credentials as a priest a very hard thing to do in the Episcopal Church in the modern world by announcing to his congregation one Sunday morning that he was leaving his wife for another woman. Perhaps that horrible betrayal of God, that failure to love God, that disobedience to God's commandments, perhaps all of that has something to do with the fact that, by his own admission, none of his children have followed him in the Christian faith. I'm in no position, of course, to judge another man's heart or life. But what Capen did, we must all be very clear. Be real believers are not to do. What Capen did, Joshua said, real believers must not do. What Capen did is the sort of thing the nations do. The very kind of thing that God condemns And punishes the very sort of thing this nation is doing all the time. That's what Joshua says to Israel here. Take care that you trust the Lord, that you love Him, that you obey His commandments. It must be so, because such behavior is what God is owed by us. Because He is a person who has loved us and saved us and called us into relationship with himself. And if we love God as a person, we will, of course, strive to do what pleases him. All Capon could say was there were a lot of departments in which I was not a success. True faith in God is obedience to him. True faith in God is love for him. It is so, it must be so, because in the Bible all of this is so intensely personal. These are not sterile things like the religion of most people. These are not external things. These are not routine things. We don't obey because this is the routine of life we have learned from our parents or because we think it will pay dividends down the road, though it certainly will pay those dividends. We obey because these are God's commandments. Not somebody else's. They're God's. And because we Trust him to direct our lives in the very best way. We love him because he loved us. We trust him because his word and his promises are his word and his promises. This is the issue of your life. The main issue. The great issue. Whether you are a Christian or not yet. A Christian. Do you know God in this way? And do you continue to know Him in this way? Are you related to God in that intensely personal way that leads to trust and obedience and love? This is the great question that every human being must answer. And even those who have already answered it must continue to say their yes and their amen until the end of their lives. What a person does. In becoming a Christian is what he does while a Christian, until the end of his life. Trust, love, and obey God as a person. Compared to this question of your relationship to God, there are no other questions of any consequence in your life. Which is why Joshua chose to say these things to Israel. In his farewell address, the key thing, he said, is to cling to God. Never fail to do that. You do that. God will do the rest. God is a person. You're a person. At last, it will be, it must be, person to person, you and the living God. You trusting, clinging, and obeying, God saving, keeping, and Blessing. That must be because, as Joshua reminds us here, God must save or he must judge one or the other. That's what makes human life so impossibly important and significant. And down deep, every human being knows it and knows why it must be so. But take heart. Jesus Christ himself, God himself, said, He who comes to me, I will never drive away. He, she, who comes to me, I will never drive away. Amen. During the distribution of the elements, we're going to sing hymn 654. So have that hymn ready to sing after the choral anthem. Our Father in Heaven, we've been reminded of Your great mercy and love to undeserving sinners such as ourselves, helpless, so helpless, we hadn't even the foggiest idea of our need or any willingness or interest in seeing that great need met. And You intervened. And showed us what we did not know. Taught us what we had to learn. Bent our wills to yours. That we might be saved. Now it is ours to thank you for that. But also to ask you for more and more and more of the same. More of yourself. And of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And of the Holy Spirit himself. In our lives. In every way, every day, more of yourself. As we take the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Renew our faith, our obedience, and our love. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of Him that we do this. For in the night in which our Savior was betrayed, He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, after they had eaten, our Savior took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul adds that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. After the choral anthem, hymn 654.
1: And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. so that you will love one another.
0: Our final hymn is also printed for your use. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken to the tomb crucifer. the Lord before you and sing to him.